0: Thanks to ACAST for hosting and monetizing this podcast.
1: Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake up call.
0: Oh, hi, nerds. Hi, hi, hi. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. And today I am here with a reading to accompany last week's episode all about Aphrodite, Anchises, and Aeneas. The triple A's, as I've just decided to call them. The story of Aphrodite and Anchises is told in detail in the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, a hymn that I could have sworn I'd already read to you, but I checked, and I checked, and I had Michaela check, and no, it doesn't seem like I have. Which is perfect, because it fits so much better here anyway. This is the last of the long, detailed Homeric hymns. The others I've already read to you, Demeter, Hermes, and the two to Apollo. The rest of the hymns are short and sweet, equally beautiful, but brief. I'm going to share all of those shorter ones with you in one episode in a few weeks. But before we get into today's reading, that sexy, sexy story of the goddess who sexes up a Trojan to conceive a mysterious and oh-so-intriguing Greek version of the Trojan Aeneas, let's talk about cocktails or more specifically, the book I've written featuring the nerdiest, silliest, and wordplay-filled Greek mythology-themed cocktails. Next week, Tuesday, April 12th, my book, Nectar of the Gods, comes out. It's available for pre-order now and may even be in some stores already by the time this episode comes out, but it's officially out as of the 12th. It was So much fun to do, and of course, it's illustrated by the magician Sarah Richard, who illustrated my mythology handbook. And for the cocktails, the publisher brought on the wonderful Thea Angst, who is so fun and invented such incredible cocktails. I wrote all the mythological and historical content, and together we created a truly enjoyable, silly, and nerdy-as-hell book of cocktails. And yes, it's cocktails, but it's also just so nerdy and silly and full of history and myth. Things like me explaining the importance of wine in ancient Greece, its origins and mythology, talking about all the varied pottery they used, drinking vessels and mixing bowls, vessels that even served to keep wine cool. There's a lot of talk of Kyliks, kylikes Craters, Cycters, uh, Amphorae. <sighs> I talk about Symposia, the ancient Athenian house parties and the drinking games that they sometimes played there. And then the cocktails themselves. You can look forward to drinks like the Catharian cocktail, a bubbly pink cocktail with hints of rose for our girl Aphrodite. Or the hot, hot Hephaestus, a warm and spicy drink for the god of the forge. Or there's just some good puns and plays on classic cocktails, like Pan's Cup, which, you guessed it, has pins. The Appletini of Discord, a Tequila Helios, or a Bloody Medea. There's Odysseus's Wine Dark Sea, Sappho's Lesbian Libation, and my personal favorite, Agamemnon's Bathwater. My favorite because, yes, a major publishing house did not bat an eye when I wanted to name a cocktail after the bloody bathwater of a man who was killed there by his wife. Yes, the cocktail looks like bloody bathwater. Because of course it does. And yes, there is an illustration to accompany it that is so hardcore. (laughs) I want to share more from this book with you because it's just so fun, but I had so much trouble picking out which one I would read from. I want to show the true breadth of, like, the history, mythology, and nerdery involved. I got to feature lesser-known characters like Thalassa, the primordial goddess of the sea, whose name meant sea in ancient Greek, and in modern Greek, it still means sea. So there, hers is the Thala Sea breeze. Get it? <laughs> like a sea breeze with Thalassa. <sighs> or there's the Midas mule. Because he was given donkey ears, but it's a play on Moscow mule. Get it? It's hilarious, and it was way too much fun. I had so much fun with wordplay. Like, I came up with a cocktail named for Glauca, the princess of Corinth, who Jason tries to leave for Medea, because I could pick literally anyone. And I think I'm going to read that one, because it's underrated and silly, and it's my way of nudging a Canadian whiskey into the mix. So before we get to the Homeric reading, here is the content for the Corinthian Crown Royal from my book, Nectar of the Gods. It's all fun and games until you anger a woman like Medea and she gifts you with a poisoned crown. Glauca was a princess of Corinth who, unfortunately for poor Glauca, caught the eye of Jason, the so-called hero who was married to Medea, but decided he'd rather a Greek wife than a foreign one. Glauca has very little agency in the story, so we don't know how she felt. Only that Jason left Medea for Glauca. Medea's anger was misplaced. She sent her children with a gift for Glauca, their new stepmother. A crown and robe that would poison and burn Glauca when she put them on, and do the same to her father when he tried to save her. Medea was definitely the villain in Glauca's story, told most viscerally in Euripides' tragedy, Medea. But if it weren't for Jason leaving Medea for another woman just because she was more Greek, then Glauca would be alive, and maybe the women would even be friends. The strong, earthy, and bitter Corinthian Crown Royal is the perfect cocktail to enjoy while you consider the harm women and myth have done to one another, when their blame was better placed upon the men in their lives. The ingredients are one teaspoon of ground sumac, divided, one fresh lemon wheel, one and a half ounces of Crown Royal Whiskey, half an ounce of Carpano botanic bitter. The instructions? Begin by pouring half the sumac into a small bowl. Add the lemon wheel and pour the rest of the sumac on top of the wheel to prepare your violent royal garnish. Combine the rest of the ingredients with ice in a Corinthian crater or a mixing glass. Stir well, considering the merits of never interacting with Jason in the first place, and strain into a stemmed kylix or a coupe glass. Garnish the sumac-coated floating lemon wheel like poor Glauca's poisoned and murderous crown. What I loved was that I could feature anyone, whether or not they were a major player in the stories. Because while the book features stories, it isn't about me. It's just about a fun cocktail with mythological themes. Because while the book features stories, it isn't about that. It's just about a fun cocktail with mythological themes. So I could talk about Glauca or Thalassa or Styx or Calypso. I even got to feature at least half women, which is obviously a thrill. I won't go too deep, I promise. You'll just have to pick up a copy of the book. But I will share just the instructions for how to make the Atlantean cocktail. Because of course I made an Atlantean cocktail. It's called, well, Plato's Theory of Atlantis. And it's blue and weird and tasty. The instructions go like this. Combine all the wild and unbelievable so-called Atlantean ingredients in a shaker or a shaker, with ice. Shake well, like the earthquake or volcano that definitely did not destroy Atlantis because it absolutely never existed to begin with. Strain into a stemmed kylix, a martini glass, though not one depicting Plato's lost city because it wasn't a Greek myth and thus was never depicted in art. Enjoy as you consider the merits of archaeology. <laughs> Seriously, I just all love it so much. Next Year of the Gods is available wherever you get your books. Worldwide. Any bookstore can order it. So if they don't have it available, you can just ask. That goes for my first book, Greek Mythology, The Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes Handbook, 2. Okay, okay, okay. Here's the Homeric came to Aphrodite. This is the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, translated by H.G. Evelyn White. Muse, tell me the deeds of golden Aphrodite the Cyprian, who stirs up sweet passion in the gods, and subdues the tribes of mortal men and birds that fly in air, and all the many creatures that the dry land rears, and all the sea. All these love the deeds of rich, crowned Catheria. Yet there are three hearts that she cannot bend, nor yet ensnare. First is the daughter of Zeus who holds the aegis, bright-eyed Athena, for she has no pleasures in the deeds of golden Aphrodite, but delights in wars and in the work of Ares, in strifes and battles and in preparing famous craft. She first taught early craftsmen to make chariots of war and cars variously wrought with bronze, and she too teaches tender maidens in the house and puts knowledge of goodly arts in each one's mind. Nor does laughter-loving Aphrodite ever tame in love Artemis, the huntress with shafts of gold, for she loves archery and the slaying of wild beasts in the mountains, the lyre also, and dancing and thrilling cries and shady woods and the cities of upright men. Nor yet does the pure maiden Hestia love Aphrodite's works. She was the firstborn child of wily Cronos and youngest, too, by will of Zeus who holds the aegis, a queenly maid whom both Poseidon and Apollo sought to wed. But she was wholly unwilling, nay, stubbornly refused, and, touching the head of Father Zeus who holds the aegis, she, that fair goddess, swore a great oath which has in truth been fulfilled, that she would be a maiden all her days. So Zeus the father gave her high honor instead of marriage, and she has her place in the midst of the house and has the richest portion. In all the temples of the gods she has a share of honor, and among all mortal men she is chief of the goddesses. Of these three Aphrodite cannot bend or ensnare the hearts, but of all the others there is nothing among the blessed gods or among mortal men that has escaped Aphrodite. Even the heart of Zeus, who delights in thunder, is led astray by her, though he is greatest of all and has the lot of highest majesty. She beguiles even his wise heart, whensoever she pleases, and mates him with mortal women unknown to Hera, his sister and his wife. The grandest far in beauty among the deathless goddesses, most glorious is she whom wily Cronos and her mother Rhea did beget and Zeus, whose wisdom is everlasting, made her his chaste and careful wife. But upon Aphrodite herself Zeus cast sweet desire to be joined in love with a mortal man, to the end that, very soon, not even she should be innocent of a mortal's love, lest laughter-loving Aphrodite should one day softly smile and say mockingly among all the gods, that she had joined the gods in love with mortal women who bear sons of death to the deathless gods, and had mated the goddesses with mortal men. And so he put in her heart sweet desire for Anchises, who was tending cattle at that time among the steep hills of many-fountained Ida, and in shape was like the immortal gods, Therefore, when laughter-loving Aphrodite saw him, she loved him, and terribly desire seized her in her heart. She went to Cyprus, to Paphos, where her precinct is and fragrant altar, and passed into her sweet-smelling temple. There she went in and put to the glittering doors, and there the graces bathed her with heavenly oil such as blooms upon the bodies of the eternal gods oil divinely sweet, which she had by her filled with fragrance, and laughter-loving Aphrodite put on all her rich clothes, and when she had decked herself with gold, she left sweet-smelling cypress and went in haste towards Troy, swiftly travelling high up among the clouds. So she came to many-fountained Ida, the mother of wild creatures, and went straight to the homestead across the mountains. After her came grey wolves fawning on her and grim-eyed lions and bears and fleet leopards, ravenous for deer. And she was glad in heart to see them and put desire in their breasts so that they all mated, two together, about the shadowy combs. But she herself came to the neat-built shelters, and him she found left quite alone in the homestead. The hero Anchises, who was comely as the gods, all the others were following the herds over the grassy pastures, and he, left quite alone in the homestead, was roaming hither and thither and playing thrillingly upon the lyre. And Aphrodite, the daughter of Zeus, stood before him, being like a pure maiden in height and mien, that he should not be frightened when he took heed of her with his eyes. Now, when Anchises saw her, he marked her well and wondered at her mien and height and shining garments, for she was clad in a robe outshining the brightness of fire, a splendid robe of gold enriched with all manner of needlework which shimmered like the moon over her tender breasts, a marvel to see. Also she wore twisted brooches and shining earrings in the form of flowers, and round her soft throat were lovely necklaces. And Anchises was seized with love and said to her, "'Hail, lady, whoever of the blessed ones you are that are come to this house,' whether Artemis or Leto or golden Aphrodite or high-born famous or bright-eyed Athena. Or maybe you are one of the graces come hither who bear the gods' company and are called immortal. Or else one of those who inhabit this lovely mountain and the springs of rivers and grassy meads. I will make you an altar upon a high peak in a far-seen place, and will sacrifice rich offerings to you at all seasons. And do you feel kindly towards me, and grant that I may become a man very eminent among the Trojans, and give me strong offspring for the time to come? And as for my own self, let me live long and happily, seeing the light of the sun, and come to the threshold of old age, a man prosperous among the people. Thereupon Aphrodite, the daughter of Zeus, answered him, Anchises, most glorious of all men born on earth, know that I am no goddess. Why do you liken me to the deathless ones? Nay, I am but a mortal, and a woman was the mother that bore me. Otreus, of famous name, is my father, If so be you have heard of him, and he reigns over all Phrygia rich in fortresses. But I know your speech well beside my own, for a Trojan nurse brought me up at home. She took me from my dear mother and reared me thenceforth when I was a little child. So comes it, then, that I well know your tongue also. And now the slayer of Argus with the golden wand has caught me up from the dance of Huntress Artemis, her with the golden arrows. For there were many of us, nymphs and marriageable maidens, playing together, and an innumerable company encircled us. From these the slayer of Argus with the golden wand wrapped me away. He carried me over many fields of mortal men, and over much land, untilled and unpossessed, where savage wild beasts roam through shady cooms, until I thought never again to touch the life-giving earth with my feet. And he said that I should be called the wedded wife of Anchises, and should bear you goodly children. But when he had told and advised me, he, the strong slayer of Argus, went back to the families of the deathless gods, while I am now come to you, for unbending necessity is upon me. But I beseech you by Zeus and by your noble parents, for no base folk could get as such a son as you." Take me now, stainless and unproved in love, and show me to your father and careful mother and to your brothers sprung from the same stock. I shall be no ill-liking daughter for them, but a likely. Moreover, send a messenger quickly to the swift-horsed Phrygians to tell my father and my sorrowing mother, and they will send you gold in plenty and woven stuffs, many splendid gifts. Take these as bridepiece, so do, and then prepare the sweet marriage that is honourable in the eyes of men and deathless gods. When she had so spoken, the goddess put sweet desire in his heart, and Anchises was seized with love, so that he opened his mouth and said, If you are a mortal and a woman was the mother who bore you, and Otreus of famous name is your father, as you say, and if you are come here by the will of Hermes, the immortal guide, and are to be called my wife always, then neither God nor mortal man shall here restrain me till I have lain with you in love right now. No, not even if far-shooting Apollo himself should launch grievous shafts from his silver bow. Willingly should I go down into the house of Hades, O oh, lady beautiful as the goddesses, once I had gone up to your bed. So speaking, he caught her by the hand, and, laughter-loving Aphrodite with face turned away and lovely eyes downcast, crept to the well-spread couch which was already laid with soft coverings for the hero, and upon it lay skins of bears and deep-roaring lions, which he himself had slain in the high mountains. And when they had gone up upon the well-fitted bed, first Anchises took off her bright jewellery of pins and twisted brooches and earrings and necklaces, and loosed her girdle and stripped off her bright garments and laid them down upon a silver-studded seat. Then... By the will of the gods and destiny he lay with her, a mortal man with an immortal goddess, not clearly knowing what he did. But at the time when the herdsmen her their oxen and hardy sheep back to the fold from the flowery pastures, even then Aphrodite poured soft sleep upon Anchises, but herself put on her rich raiment. And when the bright goddess had fully clothed herself, she stood by the couch, and her head reached to the well-hewn roof-tree, from her cheeks shone unearthly beauty such as belongs to rich-crowned Catheria. Then she aroused him from sleep, and opened her mouth and said, "'Up, son of Dardanus, why sleep you heavily, and consider whether I look as I did when first you saw me with your eyes?' So she spoke, and he awoke in a moment and obeyed her. But when he saw the neck and lovely eyes of Aphrodite, he was afraid and turned his eyes aside another way, hiding his comely face with his cloak. Then he uttered winged words and entreated her. "'So soon as ever I saw you with my eyes, goddess, I knew that you were divine, but you did not tell me truly.' Yet by Zeus, who holds the aegis, I beseech you, leave me not to lead a palsied life among men, but have pity on me, for he who lies with the deathless goddess is no hail-man afterwards. Then Aphrodite, the daughter of Zeus, answered him, Anchises, most glorious of mortal men, Take courage, and be not too fearful in your heart. You need fear no harm from me nor from the other blessed ones, for you are dear to the gods, and you shall have a dear son who shall reign among the Trojans, and children's children after him, springing up continually. His name shall be Aeneas, because I felt awful grief in that I laid in the bed of a mortal man. Yet are those of your race always the most like to gods of all mortal men in beauty and in stature? Verily wise Zeus carried off golden-haired Ganymedes because of his beauty to be among the deathless ones and pour drink for the gods in the house of Zeus a wonder to see, honoured by all the immortals as he draws the red nectar from the golden bowl. But grief that could not be soothed filled the heart of Tros, for he knew not whither the heaven-sent whirlwind had caught up his dear son, so that he mourned him always, unceasingly, until Zeus pitied him and gave him high-stepping horses, such as carry the immortals as recompense for his son. These he gave as a gift, and at the command of Zeus the guide, the slayer of Argus, told him all, and how his son would be deathless and unaging even as the gods. So when Tros heard these tidings from Zeus, he no longer kept mourning, but rejoiced in his heart and rode joyfully with his storm-footed horses. So also golden-throned Eos wrapped away Typhonus, who was of your race and like the deathless gods, and she went to ask the dark-clouded son of Cronos that he should be deathless and live eternally, and Zeus bowed his head to her prayer and fulfilled her desire. Too simply was queenly Eos. She thought not in her heart to ask youth for him and to strip him of the slough of dudley age. So while he enjoyed the sweet flower of life, he lived rapturously with golden throned Eos, the early born by the streams of ocean, at the end of the earth. But when the first gray hairs began to ripple from his comely head and noble chin, queenly Eos kept away from his bed though she cherished him in her house, and nourished him with food and ambrosia, and gave him rich clothing. But when loathsome old age pressed full upon him, and he could not move nor lift his limbs, this seemed to her in her heart the best counsel. She laid him in a room, and put to the shining doors. There he babbles endlessly, and no more has strength at all, such as one he had in his supple limbs." I would not have you be deathless among the deathless gods and live continually after such sort. Yet if you could live on such as now you are in look and in form and be called my husband, sorrow would not then enfold my careful heart. But, as it is, harsh old age will soon enshroud you, ruthless age which stands some day at the side of every man, deadly, wearying, dreaded even by the gods.' And now, because of you, I shall have great shame among the deathless gods henceforth continually. For until now they feared my jibes and the wiles of which, or soon of late, I mated all the immortals with immortal women, making them all subject to my will. But now my mouth shall no more have this power among the gods, for very great has been my madness, my miserable and dreadful madness." and I went astray out of my mind and have gotten a child beneath my girdle, mating with a mortal man. As for the child, as soon as he sees the light of the sun, the deep-breasted mountain nymphs who inhabit this great and holy mountain shall bring him up. They rank neither with mortals nor with immortals. Long indeed did they live, eating heavenly food and treading the lovely dance among the immortals and with them the Silene and the sharp-eyed slayer of Argus mate in the depths of pleasant caves. But at their birth pines or high-topped oaks spring up with them upon the fruitful earth, beautiful, flourishing trees towering high upon the lofty mountains, and men call them holy places of the immortals, and never mortal lops them with the axe. But when the fate of death is near at hand, first those lovely trees wither where they stand, and the bark shrivels away about them, and the twigs fall down, and at the last the life of the nymph and of the tree leave the light of the sun together. These nymphs shall keep my son with them and rear him, and as soon as he is come to lovely boyhood, the goddesses will bring him here to you and show you your child. But, that I may tell you all that I have in mind, I will come here again towards the fifth year and bring you my son. So soon as ever you have seen him, a scion to delight the eyes, you will rejoice in beholding him, for he shall be most godlike. Then bring him at once to Windy Ilium, and if any mortal ask you who got your dear son beneath her girdle, remember to tell him as I bid you." Say he is the offspring of one of the flower-like nymphs who inhabit the forest-clad hill, but if you tell all, and foolishly boast that you lay with rich-crowned Aphrodite, Zeus will smite you in his anger with a smoking thunderbolt. Now I have told you all, take heed, refrain, and name me not, for have regard to the anger of the gods.'" When the goddess had so spoken, she soared up to windy heaven. Hail goddess, queen of well-built Kypris, with you I have begun, now I will turn me to another hymn. Oh my god, how much I love reading these. Particularly Homeric hymns because they're gorgeous and so unique in the way they tell the stories, the way they call to the gods, the way they share other anecdotes like Eos and Ganymede and ugh. A reminder, the Homeric hymns are a set of poems from varying time periods, but these long ones are almost certainly from around the time of Hesiod and the composition of the Iliad and the Odyssey. That's why they're called Homeric. They're where we get so many important stories of the gods, like this one, and Demeter's search for Persephone after the abduction of Hades, and Hermes as a baby inventing liars and stealing cattle. There's so much in these. Drama and storytelling and humor. I love them. Like I said, I will share the last of the hymns with you soon to give you a taste of the shorter ones, the ones that may have been written later but are so equally intriguing and provide such insight into how these gods were understood by the people of that world. Love it, obviously. Also, just love reading shit to you. Also, obviously. Again, remember, you can get Nectar of the Gods wherever you get your books, all over the world. I'm asked a lot if the books are available in certain countries, and unfortunately, I get too many messages to answer everyone with the same response, which is just to say you can get it everywhere. It may not be like openly available in the store when you go in, but you can have them order it in all over the world. It may have a different release date somewhere that happens, so it might take longer, but it's definitely available. Same with my Greek mythology handbook. And they kind of match each other, so you should probably have both. I'm trying to wink now, but you know, this is audio. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. You are all so magnificent and kind and supportive, and you're just the best. Thank you for listening. Thanks for also just being along for as long as you have been. And thanks for buying my books if you do. And if you don't, don't worry. I still love you. I get it. I am Liv, and I love this shit.
2: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy,